0: last week we began uh, looking at Matthew chapter 18, and this week we're going to look at the next little section in there, which is uh, verses 10 through 14, it can also be found on page 978, same as last week. And Jesus is really um, just continuing his thought that, that he began last week, as we'll see as we go here, helping us to understand how to love the little ones. And uh, in particular this morning, we're looking at how to love the one that has gone astray. Again, that's Matthew chapter 18, looking at verses 10 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus, continuing to teach his disciples, says to them, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have come after us. All of us in our hearts go astray. All of us in our actions go astray. We're so grateful that you are such a kind and gentle Savior, that you come alongside us and you bring us back to you. And Father, we pray this morning that you would open our hearts and minds to see how we can be like you. How we can love each other in the way that you love us. And Father, we pray that you would open our understanding to receive your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if someone that we all knew and loved, <clears throat> someone who was uh, strong and healthy, if a person like that all of the sudden decided to stop eating food, what would we do? I'm very confident that we would all put in the time and the effort necessary uh, to try to convince them uh, that eating food is something they should definitely do. In fact, it would probably be considered a community emergency if there was someone like that in our community. Now, why would this be? Well, it's kind of obvious, right? We all know that spiritual, oh, sorry, physical nourishment is required for bodies like ours, or else we'll die. But when it comes to spiritual nourishment. For some reason, we do not see that as rising to the same level of emergency. When someone cuts themselves off from spiritual nourishment, we tend to hesitate. We're unsure. We don't want to offend them. We're afraid of of prying too much into their personal life. For some reason, it doesn't seem like the same thing. So we feel confident telling someone, hey, if you stop eating, you're going to die. But for some reason, we feel less confident looking someone in the eye and telling them, if you cut yourself off from us, you will die. But in our passage today, Jesus tells us that when a sheep of his flock, when one of his little ones goes astray, that the proper response is to go after them Because it is not the Father's will that any of his little ones should perish. Just like when someone stops taking in physical nourishment, they will die, we too, if we cut ourselves off from spiritual nourishment, will die. And we need to feel the weight of that reality so that we will be motivated to seek out the lost sheep. And so our outline this morning is simple. First, we'll look at what Jesus is saying. And here, we're simply going to just walk briefly through the passage. It's a a few short verses. And then we're going to look at what Jesus is teaching. And so here, we'll kind of expand out and look at some broader doctrines that will help us understand the passage. And then finally, application, how we should respond. So first, what Jesus is saying. So our passage is, is connected to and flows right out of what Jesus taught us last week, and last week we learned that Jesus loves his little ones. We learned that a little one is simply a Christian. It's someone who believes in Jesus. It's someone who turns from trusting in themselves and begins to trust in Jesus like a child, the same way children trust in whoever is taking care of them. And Jesus loves his little ones so much that he has strong words for those who would dare to lead one of his little ones astray. He warns anyone who would do this that their fate will be worse than having a millstone tied around your neck and drowned in the sea. And then he goes on to warn the world of judgment that is coming to people who are responsible for tempting his little ones to sin. And the reason is, as we saw last week, that sin is a really big deal. Sin leads to hell. Therefore, we should do whatever it takes to put to death sin in our lives. We should be willing to part with something that is just as good and wonderful and necessary as our hands and our eyes. We should be willing to part with things like that in our life, if that's what it would take to put to death the sin in our lives. To keep from falling into sin ourselves and to keep from leading others into sin. And the beauty of what we learned last week is that even though sin does lead to hell, our avoiding sin doesn't earn us heaven. No, heaven is a gift that we receive by simply turning to Jesus like a little child and receiving Him, receiving all of His promises as ours through faith and faith alone, and anyone can do that. There is no sin too great for the forgiveness of Jesus. And then right after that, Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. And Jesus is talking to his disciples when he says this, and uh, the most clear application to our time would be also talking to church leaders. But in a broader sense, Jesus is talking to all Christians when he says this. He tells us not to despise even one of these little ones. And in the flow of everything he said so far, to despise a little one would be to think so little of them that we would lead them into sin. Or maybe they've given into sin already. Maybe they're not cutting off their hand and gouging out their eye to walk away from sin, and instead we condemn them in our hearts as if somehow their sin is too terrible or too shameful, or we wouldn't want to be associated with anyone like that. Thinking like that would be to despise one of these little ones, because as Jesus told us last week, we are to receive anyone who turns to Him like a child. We must never forget that all of us come to Jesus on the same terms, humble, unable to save ourselves, and completely dependent on Him to keep His promises to us and to forgive us and accept us, if only we will turn to Him like a child. Because everything we have is a gift, and the only reason any of us have not fallen into worse sin in our own lives is because of the grace of God. So we have no right to despise a little one, no matter how terribly they've sinned. But verse 10 is also a hinge statement. It looks back to what Jesus has said, and it's also looking forward to what he will say. Not only does it look back on what he said about leading little ones astray or falling into sin, but it looks forward to what he's about to say about leaving the 99 to go after the 1. To despise little ones would also be to let them go astray and to do nothing it feels too awkward for us to go after them jesus wants us to know that we're despising them if we're valuing our feelings of personal comfort more than their eternal soul if we don't miss them because they're socially awkward or we don't even know them or our church is full and all of our friends are here so they don't matter to us jesus wants us to know that would be to despise them that would be to let them starve to death Without spiritual nourishment. And Jesus goes on, For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. There's a lot of opinions about what this verse means. Some say this is the proof text for uh, the idea that every Christian has a guardian angel. Others suggest that what this is talking about is believers who've died and gone to heaven and in some sense have become angels who now stand before the face of their Father. Uh, This would be then to look forward to the fate of these little ones. But probably the best way to understand this is that angels are so beautiful and glorious and so powerful and valuable that they always get to serve in the presence of God, Think about it. No one's more important to the king than those who he allows to be in his presence every day. And yet as valuable as these angels are, these are his little ones' angels. God calls on these angels to serve his church. Listen to what the writer of the Hebrews has to say about angels. He says, Are they not all ministering spirits? sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? See, God loves his little ones so much that angels, beautiful, powerful, valuable angels, are standing ready in his presence to come and to serve his people. That's how precious we are to Jesus. Uh, Maybe you also noticed that verse 11 is missing uh, from our translation when we read through it. It jumped from verse 10 to verse 11. Uh, This is another one of those instances where it's quite likely that verse 11 was added by a scribe later on in the manuscript tradition. And so the ESV and the NIV and other Bibles, um, they tend to just remove this verse because it's very likely that Matthew didn't write it. Uh, But verse 11 says this, it says, For the Son of Man came to save the lost. And most commentators agree that this was taken from Luke 19.10 and inserted here by a scribe at some point. But the reason it was inserted here is because it fits. Because not only are Jesus' little ones so valuable that angels stand ready to serve them, but Jesus himself left heaven to come and save his little ones, from their sins. Each and every one of Jesus' little ones are so precious to him, no matter what they've done, that he was willing to humble himself by becoming a human and then suffer and die on a Roman cross so that he could save them. Jesus literally humbled himself and became a child. And as we saw last week, it's, that's the person who's the greatest in the kingdom, <laughs> which means Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and if jesus loves his little ones that much no matter how much sin they've fallen into we should not despise them either if jesus doesn't despise them then let's not despise them either because actually we're one of them and then jesus tells a parable to back up his point he says what do you think If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? So he begins by saying, what do you think? He's about to give them a scenario, and he wants to know, what do you think of the scenario that I'm about to give you? If a man has a hundred sheep and even one of them goes astray, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountainside and go in search of the one? And, And the answer is, of course, well, yes, he will. He loves even one of his sheep so much that he will stop at nothing to find it, because the only place that sheep will be safe is back in the fold with the rest. And that's just a small picture of how much Jesus loves his little ones. And then we're told, and if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more—sorry, Yeah, more than over the 99 that never went astray. Now, this does not mean that we should all go astray to somehow manufacture more joy. Jesus is pointing out that when we lose something valuable, we're actually reminded of how valuable it is. Think about a parent who loses a child at Disneyland. Well, Disneyland's gates are wide open. At least they were last time I was there. Just just picture this frantic mother grabbing every Disneyland employee she can find. Get on the loudspeakers. Announce it to the world that I've lost my child. And then when she finds the child, just, just picture her holding him and kissing him. Mommy loves you so much. Now, she doesn't love that child more than her other children. But when we lose something valuable, all of a sudden we realize how valuable it is to us. So Jesus goes on, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is just a fact. It's God's desire that each and every one of his little ones will persevere until the end, that no one caused them to sin, that not a single one depart from the faith. And if Jesus loves his little ones this much, and if it's the Father's will that none perish, this should be how we think of little ones who go astray as well. They are starving themselves of spiritual nourishment, and they could die. We should not despise them or think less of them. We should face whatever danger we find on the mountain to bring them home. We should think of them like Jesus thought of us when he left heaven to come and find us. So what is Jesus teaching here? Well, the main point of this passage is that Jesus loves those who are his. He loves each and every one of them individually so much that he will do whatever it takes to find them and bring them back. And if he loves and values them this much, then we should love and value them too. We should not despise them by leading them into sin or condemning them as if somehow their sin is worse than ours or beyond saving, or by talking ourselves out of going after them because it's uncomfortable. But there are some questions that this passage raises that we must deal with. First, who do the characters in this parable correspond to in real life? So we'll briefly look at that. Second, and this is where we'll spend most of our time. If it's not the father's will for any of his little ones to perish, then why is anyone worried about them perishing? Doesn't God always get what gets what? Get, uh, sorry. Doesn't God always get what he wants? If a person is a little one that belongs to the father, isn't it impossible for that little one to ultimately go astray? And third, what does it even mean to go astray? We know what it means when a sheep goes astray, but what does it look like for one of Jesus's little ones to go astray? And how can we know if they've gone astray? Just want to put a little meat on those bones, uh, and we'll look at mostly the answer to that last question next week. Okay, so who do the characters in this parable relate to in real life? The man is clearly God, right? God is always pursuing his children. Every single one of us is in this room this morning because God came and found us. He uses other people. He uses circumstances. He uses His Word and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He reminds us of His love and His mercy and His forgiveness and His grace. He makes sin miserable to us, and then He draws us to Himself, and that's why we're all here. And we are to be like Him. In fact, one of the ways he brings wandering sheep back into the fold is by using us to go and find them. That's the point that Jesus is making here. And the flock of 99 sheep, well, that's the church. It's the visible community of people who have been baptized, who believe the doctrines of the church, and who've made a covenant with each other to love each other and to live as Christ calls us to live and to proclaim the gospel to the world. And the sheep who's gone astray is a little one. It's someone who is a member of the church. Either they were baptized into the church as a child, or they joined the church as an adult. A sheep is someone who belongs to this outward, visible community of believers. Okay? So second... If it's not the Father's will for any of His little ones to perish, why are we even talking about this? Because God always gets what He wants, right? Well, there is more than one sense in which the words, the will of God, are used in the Scriptures. Uh, Let's look at two different verses to illustrate the two different senses. In Ephesians 1, Paul says this. He says, In Him, meaning Christ, we have obtained an inheritance meaning all the benefits of being united to Christ, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So here we see that God has purposes, and He works all things, uh, good things and bad things, all according to the counsel of His will. This would be called the will of decree. So God has ordained all things that come to pass, and he works everything that happens in life according to his will, and this will can never be thwarted. God always accomplishes his will of decree. Okay, let's look at another verse. This is Ephes, our First uh, Thess- Thessalonians five. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Well, when we complain, <laughs> when we fail to pray. When we're ungrateful, we are outside of the will of God. We are not outside of his will of decree, but we are outside of his will of desire. See, God has desires for how we should live our lives. God desires us to rejoice and pray and be thankful. This is the way Jesus is using the will of God in our passage. It is God's will of desire that none of his little ones perish, which means And this is going to be something that I will explain, but just listen. He has not decreed that everyone who has ever been part of his flock at one point will be saved. Which begs another question. Okay, well, what do we do then with John 10? And this is John 10. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Well, how do we make sense of this? It seems like Jesus wants, in one sense, us to know there's a real threat when one of his little ones goes astray. He wants us to take it very seriously, knowing that it's possible for one of these little ones to be lost for good if we don't go after them. And yet at the same time, he wants us to know that there's another sense in which no one who truly belongs to him will ever be lost. So how do we reconcile these two? Well, God's people are an identifiable group of people, okay? In the Old Testament, this was the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, this is the church. And this identifiable group of people is the people we call the covenant community. Okay? Um, And I have a picture. Can we put—yeah. So, what this means is that God is in a covenant relationship with a clearly identifiable group of people. And so think of it like these concentric circles that we see on the screen here. The outside circle includes everyone who is in the visible, identifiable group of God's people that are in a covenant relationship with Him. They bear all of the obligations and responsibilities of the covenant. They uh, have access to all of the privileges and benefits of the covenant. And this whole group of people are, in some sense, little ones. They are children of God. Many have made a public profession of faith. This includes children who've been baptized and become members of the church community. This is the 99. But not every person in this community, represented by the larger circle, is a true Christian. Some who've made profession of faith or been baptized as infants will go astray. They will fall away. This is the kind of person the Apostle John is talking about in 1 John 2.19 when he says this, They went out from us, meaning they were part of us. They were with us in, in in an identifiable way. At one point, so they went out from us, but they were not of us, which means they weren't really connected with Christ by true faith. They were not one of Jesus' sheep, really. For, John says, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. They would have persevered to the end. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. You see, in John 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. Right? And he means his true sheep, those who've been chosen and elected. So there will be people who are part of the flock, and they will go out from us. And this will happen. This is a sad reality. But we must be like God. It should be our desire that none of these little ones perish. But also, within this larger covenant community, full of people who've made profession of faith or been baptized, there's this other invisible group of people represented by the smaller circle inside the larger circle. And these are the people who have true faith. This is the group who will never be snatched out of Jesus' hand. This is the group who cannot lose their salvation. This is the group who will persevere through the trials and temptations of this life all the way until the end. These are the people who are not looking at their circumstances. They're not looking at their goodness or their badness. These are the people who are looking at just Jesus. He is their only hope. And what Jesus is saying in verse 14 of our passage is that it is the will of the Father... It is His desire that everyone who's in this larger group make it into the smaller group. And isn't this all of our desire too, right? We all have this intuitive knowledge that when we baptize our children up here, that they're part of this larger circle. But we don't know yet if they're part of the smaller circle. That's why we pray for them. That's why we're so thankful when we hear the congregation take vows, to help lead them and guide them. And we trust that God will keep his promises to that child. But there's a mystery there. At some point, that child needs to receive those promises by faith. And those who go astray might be someone with true faith. And if we don't go after them, maybe they bounce around and find God again at some other time in their life. That does happen. We've all heard that story before, and maybe some of us have lived that story. We left the church community, and they didn't come after us, but God led us back to Him. But those who go astray might also be someone without true faith, someone who is only part of the group represented by the outside circle. Why do we go after them? Well, because we don't know. Because we have obligated ourselves to them. by being part of this covenant community. Because our desire is to see them experience, if they haven't already, what it is to have true faith. And Jesus makes it clear here that our searching for the lost sheep could be the thing that makes the difference between heaven or hell for that individual. It could be the means that God uses to give them true faith. Do we see how important it is not to despise them? Do we see how important it is to value them as much as Jesus does? So what does it look like then for someone to go astray? How can we identify whether or not someone has gone astray and that we need to go after them? So here's how Scripture defines going astray. It is to depart from the beliefs or the behavior God defines for His people. But to do so without repentance, right? Because all of us depart from the beliefs and the behavior in our hearts and in our lives day in and day out, but God, through His grace, helps us recognize that we repent and we return to Him like a child. So the one who's gone astray is the one who's done so, and they've done so without repentance. And the most obvious way we know someone has gone astray is if they stop coming to church. Now, wait a minute, Pastor Patrick, just because someone stops going to church doesn't necessarily mean that they've gone astray in the way that you've described. And I would agree. It doesn't necessarily mean that. But how would we know? How would we know? If they're not here, we don't know anything about them. We, we have to reach out to them to find out, well, why aren't you here? Why aren't you with us? Because it's so easy to drift and to go astray. Someone can also go astray while still attending church by either falling into unrepentant sin or changing their beliefs about a core doctrine of the faith. So if he moves in with his girlfriend or he doesn't believe that Jesus is God anymore, that person has gone astray. And we need to go after them. Which takes us to our final point. How should we respond to what Jesus is saying here? So the question we're asking here is really, What does it practically look like for us to leave the 99 and go after the 1? And the easiest one to deal with is the person who stopped coming to church, because all we have to do is call them. You see, not only is them not coming to church the most obvious way we know they've gone astray, it's the easiest way to deal with. Hey, this is Patrick. I haven't seen you here for a few months. I miss you. What's going on? How easy is it for someone to stop coming to church and then all of a sudden three months go by and then three years go by and no one calls them. And even though reaching out is awkward sometimes it is so much better than telling them we don't care about them by not calling them at all. And if we do reach out there will be a number of answers to that question. Sometimes you'll hear, I got a new job. I actually found a new church home. I'm not sure I like going to church anymore. Who knows? No matter what they say, we have to bear with them and stay connected to them until they return or join another church with new elders and a new community. But we must not despise them by failing to reach out. We must remember that Jesus left heaven for them and that their angels are in the presence of God and this person is infinitely valuable to Jesus. And so he or she is worth our time. But we must not let them disappear into thin air. And then if they have fallen into sin or wrong belief, in our next section, next week, we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about how to help that person But I want to close with this. If someone goes astray, either by falling into sin or wrong belief, or by simply not coming to church, it is evidence that they might not be in that center circle. And we need to love them like Jesus does. We need to recognize that they are starving themselves spiritually. We need to see them as that person who was strong and healthy and then stopped eating food. That is the level of emergency that that situation actually is. We need to recognize how deceitful sin is, how easy it is to drift from the faith. We need to agree as a community of believers to not let each other fall away. Let me tell you a story. There's a man I know. Some of you may know him too. Um, But he told me a story one time. So this is, he goes to Escalon. And, man, when I preach, right, I I can see you all. He was one of those people who just had the biggest smile on his face throughout the entire service. And I I remember I asked him one time, I said, hey, you seem to really enjoy church. He says, oh, I love it here. There's nowhere else I'd rather be. And I said, wow, how'd you get like that? He's like, the grace of God. He said, "You didn't used to always be like that. I hated coming to church as a kid. And then like 20 to 23, I stopped coming to church. And then I got married and my wife wanted to come to church and all my friends went to church. And so I just went to church and I I would sit there and I would kind of endure it and just live with it because it's what I did and what everybody in my community did and what was expected of me. And then when I was about 40, all of a sudden I realized what Jesus had done for me. All of a sudden I realized what a sinner I actually am and that Jesus had been so gracious to me and that he bore with me for all those years of me grumpily sitting in church and and then all of a sudden the songs became alive to me and all of a sudden the preaching became alive to me and I and I realized that he could have let me go but he didn't and that's the thing when we go after someone like that it could be like that guy except when he was 30 years old and we and we bring him back and and it may be in 10 more years before God quickens his soul. And, and this man may have been regenerate just in a backslidden kind of way for many years, or it may have taken until he was 40 years old before he was truly born again. I don't know. But, but the point of the story is there, there's something vital about being with the covenant community and remaining connected. It is so essential to our spiritual health because if he had drifted away when he was 30 And hadn't been there year after year hearing those sermons singing those songs even though he didn't connect with them Right, that was the means that god used And so we need to feel the weight of the fact That sin does lead to hell, which is what jesus taught us last week And we go after those who've gone astray, not with judgment, not with feeling as if somehow we're better than them. We go after them out of love and fear, knowing that there, but for the grace of God, go I. We go after them hoping that it's us, that if it's us who goes astray in a couple years, they'll come after us too. Can you imagine how much different it would be if we all looked around at each other and were honest enough to say like, hey, look, sin is deceitful, I'm battling it every day, and if I go astray, I really want you to come after me. Okay, I agree to do that. Good. And if you go astray, I'm coming after you. But because we kind of never made that agreement, and we're sort of in the cultural malaise that we all exist in, where we feel like that's almost too personal to talk to somebody about, that's one of the reasons we don't. But I think Jesus has these passages here for us to come awake to the the fact that, no, this is—we are shoulder to shoulder— And the journey through this life together. And part of how we stay shoulder to shoulder is by doing the things that Jesus is calling us to do here, loving each other so much that we'll reach into each other's lives uncomfortably, if that's what it takes, to make sure that we remain connected to His community. This is what Jude says He says, Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. There's a real threat. James says something similar. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Right? James, in one verse, says everything we've been saying in this passage. We must go after our wandering brothers and sisters, fearing the reality that sin leads to hell, but confident in the reality that all one must do is turn to Jesus and trust in Him like a child to be saved. And then we receive them back, no matter what. We receive them back as Christ Himself. Because His mercy and His grace and His forgiveness extend to the far end. There is no sin that cannot be forgiven And it's not the Father's will that any of his little ones should perish. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you call us to be a covenant community, a community that is bound together by promises, not only promises that you've made to us as a people, but promises that we've made to each other. And God, we're thankful that you use those promises, even the ones we've made to each other, as the means by which you will cause us to persevere until the end. We are too weak on our own, God, and we admit it. We need you, God. And we need each other. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.